welcome back to the Will Be Movies. This is a podcast looking at 25 of our favourite movies from a given decade. This is Volume 3, 1990-1999, Episode 65, Fargo. My name is Matt Waters. I'm joined, as always, by Ben Phillips. Benjamin, I make you a solemn promise right now. I will not do the accent. You're welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. I may I... say some of the turns of phrase that they say, but I will not do the accent. How are you, though? I'm good, apart from I'm recovering from a cold. We've actually kind of, like, nailed this well enough where, like, I will not be incredibly, like, bunged up whilst discussing movies on the podcast. Wonderful. It's been a while since we discussed Heat. Uh, yeah, yeah, I suppose it has, and you were suffering a little bit then, so... Well, I'm glad you've gotten over the worst of it then, it sounds like. I know, but it was my own fault. I went out three nights in a row, and then I was like, God, do I have COVID? I was like, no, I just have a fucking cold. (laughs) Well, that's the world we live in. Do I have COVID is just a a question that can happen. We've been watching Scrubs, and they're talking about SARS, and I'm like, oh, cool, it's COVID, like, 14, or whatever actual number (laughs) SARS was. Um, And it's just very weird to look back on that sort of uh, time. But instead of looking back on that, we're going to look back at... Fargo, a movie we both picked, I believe, yes, uh, a movie we both picked, very easy one to put on the list for me. I would imagine you maybe struggled more because I wouldn't call myself a Coen Brothers guy. I I, I like half of their movies-ish. I, I don't love most of them. This is easily my favourite one. In the 90s alone, they have Miller's Crossing, Barton Fink, The Hudsucker Proxy, and The Big Lebowski as alternates. I don't know if you struggled to go with Fargo in the end, but... Fargo, Fargo is my favourite Coen Brothers movie. It's okay. in my top ten movies of all time. Okay. Uh, I adore yeah. this movie. Like it's, it, it, I think it's there are a handful of movies that we've talked about that are just game changers. You know? Like, it, it's just like it opens a world, almost. It's just, this is so different to anything else that you've seen when you first see it. Well, I, that's how it was for me anyway. It's just like, what is this? It's, it's what makes some of the critical reception to it. Because obviously, like, you have, I think it's Siskel and Ebert, I can't remember if it's... Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Both of them kind of, like, putting it in their top ten movies of, of 1996. But then you've got some reviews that are going like, man, this would be a nice film noir if the Coen brothers could get their tweens out of the way of it. And it's like, <laughs> that's what makes the movie, like, another level. It's like, that's... just... The, the weirdness of it, like yeah. the fact that like some of the murders happen off screen, the fact that everyone's so nice, like the, the weird kind of like hazy storytellingness of it, where like it's not going to show you everything, but like everything that's happening is kind of important vibe. Of, Honestly, like fifty percent of it is the sort of the aesthetic and the twee and all of that for me. Um, so without that, it's like a very middle of the road like crime thriller in my opinion. <laughs> Uh, and if you lose the, the, the innate Fargo-ness of it, I wouldn't think this is worth talking about. That's a crazy review, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, but uh, so, yeah, released March 96, May in the UK. Budget of $7 million. One of the lowest budgets, I think, of any film we've covered. Uh, but it did bring home close to $61 million. 60.6, let's go with that. Isn't bad, I would say, for, for that amount of money and how profoundly weird it is and like the violence stops it from like capturing the sort of quirky comedy crowd but it, then it's possibly a bit too weird for most adults so like, yeah i don't know uh, i, I mean, think yeah, it's a respectable it, number given all of that 
yeah, I mean, it comes out in March, which obviously isn't like seen as like an awards mm. window kind of movie. It opens <laughs> at number yeah. 16 at the box office, which obviously it's only on 36 screens, but it's a per, uh, per theater average of about $20,000. So actually doing all right for that kind of opening weekend, where it's opening behind The Birdcage, Home Bound 2, Up Close and Personal, Down Periscope, and Hellraiser 4 Bloodline. So, wow. Like a weird box office, right? Like yeah, not. Yeah. Uh, it, it, oh, I think word of mouth kind of does better for it because over the next couple of weeks it starts to go up. So like, goes up to fourteen the next week with adding about a couple of theaters. Mm. It peaks at number six and it stays in the top ten for about three weeks, whereas where it makes the bulk of its kind of like US gross, and then it just kind of hangs out at the box office. Is I, I actually know. So it, it closes in August of nineteen ninety six and then has a, a kind of a a rallying run. Mm. when the Oscars are happening the next year where it makes a little bit more money but yeah it, it does it does alright it does about 20 million dollars in the US 40 million internationally oh, right. nothing just nothing to sniff at but like it's definitely not like it's not a huge hit but it's definitely one of those kind of like word map hits where like you now go to someone about 1996 movies and go have you seen Fargo they're more likely to have seen Fargo than they are to have seen Mm. Uh, like Secrets and Lies, I feel. Yeah, oh yeah. Not not to say that Secrets and Lies isn't a great movie, but like just more likely, like Fargo has stuck in the the consciousness of the public a little bit more. Yeah, I've always found it interesting that like the Cohen stuff is like profoundly American, and yet I feel it has a huge international audience. And like that Fargo made more money internationally than domestically, I think is kind of a testament to that. Like. So much of their stuff is these small American towns or this, like, old era of America. Like, it, it's never, like, you know, New York City today kind of thing. But I just find that very interesting that it doesn't seem to appeal to America itself. I have to imagine part of that is they are fundamentally, like, they're mainstream, but they're weird mainstream. They are weird, absolutely. But, like, Wes Anderson's weird and Wes Anderson, I would... Uh, off the top of my head, probably more commercially successful than the Coen. Yes, I mean, yeah. I mean, I think, I think if you're going head to head, it's like the most successful Coen Brothers movie is probably No Country for Old Men. No Country for Old Men, going off my head, and the most successful Anderson movie is is Grand Budapest. And I feel like Grand Budapest is like. I guess Anderson stuff is 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 just entirely silly and low stakes. Even you know we discussed Grand Budapest in Volume Two, but even though it has a little bit of darkness there. I think the Cohen stuff is far more rolling around in that darkness, as it were. Yeah. Um, I, th- I think the fundamental thing of it is is that like Europe likes an auteur, mm-hmm. and the Cohen brothers are kind of yeah. big American auteurs in a way that they're not flashy in the way that Tarantino is. And obviously, Tarantino yeah. had like segues that into like huge, huge success. But like what, this movie opens at the Cannes Film Festival. Uh, they win the Best Director Award. Uh, they're nominated for the Palme d'Or. I think that is kind what do you, of like... What do you mean, they, Ben? It's not allowed for two people to direct a film. Uh, yeah, so this movie is credited to Joel Cohen, but it is actually directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen. Yeah. Um, and they, they have a made-up alias for editing, don't they? Is editing another one where only one person is allowed to do it? Uh, I'm not sure, actually, but yeah, okay. Roderick James is what they go by when they're editing the movies. Yeah. I, I, it's actually interesting, because this year is the first time that only one of them will actually have directed a movie with the the, the Revenge of, or the Tragedy of Macbeth, Macbeth, which I'm very excited for, like, yeah. Dear Lord, a, a Denzel Washington, Francis McDormand-led Macbeth movie. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, 
I wouldn't say I'm like, enamored with their stuff, but I'll always give it a look. Like they, they are interesting <laughs> fellas, which is odd because part of their thing is they're just a couple of dudes. <laughs> like they, they could not be more the antithesis of Quentin Tarantino, who is kind of a cult of personality almost. And interesting thing about them is the movies that they write for other people are not as good as the stuff that they no. choose to write themselves. Like Suburbicon is not a good movie. Unbroken is not a good movie. Mm. But like most of their I, I like pretty much every Coen Brothers movie I've seen. I think Lady Killers is the only one that I've got like oh God really is that like it's just a little bit exhausting, a little bit too not in their wheelhouse, I guess, but like I, I, I don't mind that movie. Like it's not fantastic, but it, it's it's not a bad time, I don't think. But it does it does stick out from the <laughs> from Yeah, but where do you stand on like kind of what other Coen Brother movies do you like, or is it just kind of like a general kind of like, eh, I guess? Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've never been a Lebowski guy. Um, mm-hmm. and it just, I, I profoundly don't get it. Well, I get it, but you know. <laughs> um, I really like their version of True Grit, to be honest. True, um, True Grit's great. I love yeah. True Grit. Miller's Crossing, Barton Fink. I like both of those. Um, I haven't actually seen the Hard Sucker Proxy, unfortunately. Uh, some some people stand for it. Like it's one of those ones that I watched when I was very young because obviously mm. that's also got the Sam Raimi element to it as well. <laughs> yeah, the Raimi brothers. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Burn after reading. Yeah, I, I I I can get on board with that. Inside Llewellyn Davis is it's got something to it. <laughs> I never saw Hail Caesar. Never saw a serious man. I know people go bananas for a serious man serious man is great love uh-huh. serious man probably in my top five coen brothers movies okay well, at some point we'll do the coen verse i suppose <laughs> but yeah but Fa- fargo it feels entirely its own animal and like i wouldn't go as far as to say more famous for being a tv show because i feel it really uh the shine came off that apple a little bit like there was a whole season that aired and nobody talked about is that season over now, or is it still airing? Or... No, it's been over for ages. Like, okay. That aired this year. <laughs> yeah, and I, I'm not joking. I have not seen a single person make a single reference to it existing. And seasons one to three were like event television. I know three probably wasn't as popular as one and two. Um, I liked it. But one and two certainly were like, be there and watch Fargo kind of thing. It was an event. So, you know, maybe that, maybe that has... Uh, swung back towards the movie being the more famous thing but yeah it it just feels like such a like nobody doesn't well actually there's one person who famously does not like Fargo some politician or someone wrote like 75 pages about why he hates Fargo or some shit I don't know but I assume they are from Minnesota I don't know (laughs) most people love Fargo you and I love Fargo you said it was released not in not with the idea of it being Oscar bait in mind. However, why don't you run us through the Oscars of that year? Yeah, so it's rare for a movie to come out in March and make it all the way through to Oscar season. Like, it takes a very special kind of movie to make it that far through the season because if you follow the awards, you know that most movies that win awards or are nominated for awards come out in that kind of like October, November, December window. 
where I mean, you look at it this year where I'm like looking at the list of movies that I want to see and I'm like Jesus Christ there's like 20 movies that I really really want to see mm. that are all coming out of the tail end of this year and, and some of that see... is not on purpose though <laughs> some of that is COVID related yes but some of it is also like I'm now looking at it and going like Jesus Christ I've got to wait until these movies deign to release in the, in the UK mm. at some point early next year like I really really want to see things like to tame and whatnot and it's like i can't go to the lff to go see it i just gotta wait for it to drop somewhere but anyway tangent about this is movies fargo was nominated for seven oscars it's nominated for best picture best directing best leading actress which it wins best supporting actor best screenplay written directly for the screen which it also wins <laughs> best cinematography one of many 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 snubs in roger deaconson's career uh, and best mm. film editing Probably should have won most of those. Uh, <laughs> Almost all of picture, them, I would say. In Best Picture, it's up against The English Patient, Jerry Maguire, Secrets and Lies, and Shine. How does it not win? I don't know. I mean, like, there, there's good movies in that. I like Fargo, I like Jerry Maguire, I like Secrets and Lies. I probably have all of them win over English Patient, but <laughs> I have to imagine part of it is it's just a little bit too weird and the the academy voters are going like oh no i can't we can't nominate the movie where there are like scenes in which characters have sex in like the most passionless way possible or passionateless way possible or well, how does anything win an oscar now then <laughs> or or even down to like we can't we can't honor a movie where someone's leg is put into a wood chipper mm. why not <laughs> some very violent movies have won oscars this is true. Yeah. The Godfather won too. Yeah, there you go. Just profoundly weird that you would be on board enough to nominate it, be on board enough to give Francis McDormand an Oscar, but not go all the way and give it Best Picture when it clearly was. Um, I mean, it, it feels like this this movie's got a weird history of these kind of things. So obviously, like it loses Best Picture to the English Patient, but the English Patient is such a slam dunk kind of movie that wins Oscars, isn't it? Like uh-huh. it's. You put it in the Oscar machine and that comes out. It's like an epic romantic war drama set in World War II. Like it's, it's yeah, perfectly yeah. made to win Oscars. And Fargo is a tiny movie starring some actors that you might know <laughs> dicking around in the snow. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. I mean, you look at this and you see the American Film Institute put it on their list of 100 greatest films in history. Um, yes. But then it's like the one nineties movie that gets delisted in the in the follow up list in two thousand seven, and you're like, really? You're saying that Dances with Wolves is a movie that you you missed out on, but Fargo is something that like has lost its luster mm-hmm. in the last ten years since you did this list. Like, and not to say that the movies that are on the two thousand seven version of the AFI one hundred years one hundred movies list aren't good, but it's wild that they're like, yeah, but Fargo isn't one of the best movies of the 90s. Yeah, and it is it is in the National Film Registry, one of seven films to ever make it at the earliest point of eligibility. We It has come up here and there in this podcast, um, from Volume 1, Memento, Brokeback Mountain, and The Hurt Locker. Nothing from Volume 2 is eligible because you have to have been out for 10 years, so I assume they're going to announce some stuff this year, maybe, or next year. Uh, and in this volume so far, Goodfellas, Science of the Lambs, Boys in the Hood, that's literally our first three movies, I believe. Uh, Jurassic Park and Groundhog Day. Uh, and then Fargo. So they got it right. <laughs> but yeah, just just profoundly weird. You mentioned some actors you may know. William H. Macy. <laughs> Ned Flanders himself. Um, <laughs> allegedly. <laughs> read for a smaller role. Got invited back to read for Jerry. Wasn't happy with his own read. 
So he flew to New York to meet with the Coens again and said, I want to read again because I'm scared you're going to screw this up and hire someone else. And he possibly threatened to shoot their dogs if they cast someone else. <laughs> I think that's profoundly funny because it's William H. Macy. <laughs> You know, like if it's anyone else, I'm like, oh no, <laughs> he threatened an animal. But it's like, wait, which makes he couldn't hurt anyone. Yeah, so perfectly, profoundly right for this part. Like, I, I, I don't have a mental timeline of William H Macy's career. You might, but uh, just yeah, fully puts him on the map as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I mean, it's his, it's his first Academy Award nomination. He's in lots of stuff. Like, he's in Down Periscope at the same mm. time as in Fargo. This is kind of like, he's done a few movies, and he's kind of becoming one of those character actors who's in, like, two or three movies every single year when you look at his career. But it's definitely like, this is a big, flashy performance. And obviously, like, he's, he, he takes that and goes on to do, like, Air Force One and Boogie Nights the next year and mm-hmm. and all these other things. But yeah, I definitely do think Fargo is not a minting because I think like the amount of times that he's like an uncredited cameo says that he is a face, but I think he's definitely more of a like, oh, I know that guy, yeah, rather than like a someone that you can you can pin a movie to and go, this is this is a box office draw to have William H Macy. And obviously, at this point, <laughs> William H Macy is most well known for. Wild Hogs with with Martin Lawrence and Tim Allen and John Travolta, obviously. <laughs> 11 seasons of, of Shameless. Yeah, yeah. Wild that that show went in the same amount of time as the UK version of the show. But probably with like eight times as many episodes, I would think. Well, I think Shameless is like the weird UK show that also was doing like 10 episode seasons. Well, so even have, like, 10 is a lot for us. But yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, he's the, he's the Frank equivalent, isn't he? He is the Frank equivalent. And he's also like the worst part of the show where like the show... <laughs> kind of like pins itself on him being like the the, the kind of like the comedic centre of it. It's like, no, like do the fun not the fun, do the like interesting commentary on on lower class people in America in the in the twenty first yeah. century. Well like Frank in the UK version like fucks off for large amounts of the show. <laughs> like and he sort of arrives to do his little monologue, but most of the you know, the stories are, are everyone else basically. There's a you know, there are feature episodes for him and everything, but yeah, very weird. There are five more episodes of the British version of the show than there are the American version. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So he had to read for it. The, a trio of people that did not have to read for Fargo were Francis McDormand, Steve Buscemi, and Peter Stormare. Uh, who it helps to be sleeping with the, the director, doesn't it? Married to him for over a decade at this point. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, Francis McDormand is married to uh, Joel Cohen. Uh, we were we were looking this up. So obviously she is playing Marge Gunderson, incredibly mm-hmm. pregnant in this movie. Mm-hmm. Part of what makes kind of the character so memorable representation. Yeah, it was one of those things where like we were looking at going like they have a child together. Well, she, <laughs> she was not pregnant. No, she was not pregnant. No, she adopted a child. So she so uh, as far as I'm aware, Francis McDormand has never been pregnant. So she had to consult with people, didn't she? To like she tailed out. a real pregnant police officer for a while, I think, or maybe like met with one who had been pregnant while an officer or something. I don't know. Yeah, and very much left to come up with her own backstory with her on-screen husband, uh, John Carroll Lynch, and Marge and Norm are just. Oh. <laughs> I don't have a word better than. Oh. <laughs> They're just so fucking cute, spending every scene either in bed or eating. And just goals, quite frankly. Um, yeah, they are very, very good. Um, much more about Francis McDormand to come. Steve Buscemi and Peter Stormare as well. Um, 
characters all written for them. Peter Stormare had been offered a part in, I think, Miller's Crossing and had to turn it down um, and regretted it. So they finally got that man and they gift him, what, 15 lines? <laughs> Something like that. Like, he's such a presence. Oh, of movie. course he is, yeah. He's so intimidating and just... Like, what is the deal with this guy? And, like, so I actually wanted to talk about this. You, you said to me conservatively, how much TV are we going to talk... Tell, how much of a TV show are we going to talk about? And I, my response was, I don't remember it, like, beat for beat enough to probably do that. But what I did find myself doing was, like... So, obviously, the show is an anthology. There are explicit ties to the movie and, you know, connections between seasons. But broadly speaking, it's kind of just separate... Season one of Fargo is that weird thing where it's like it's a semi sequel slash semi remake. Well, like, I re- so I I remember personally when the adverts were were on for Fargo, it kind of came across as this is a this is a remake for TV, and then it blew my fucking mind when they revealed the goddamn ice scraper in, in the snow, and they were like, no, it's a sequel. But what I found myself doing was looking at. All three, and presumably four, <laughs> if that fourth season is real, all three seasons that I've seen and the movie, there is this common DNA so that, that, that gives it that innate Fargo-ness. And I think one of those things is, I mean, we we can start with any of them, but one of them, you know, Peter Stormare is very much in the mould of this kind of quiet, brooding, incredibly violent antagonist who kind of does not seem to fit into the world around him uh, and just causes absolute mayhem. Yeah, I mean, th- this character feels like a proto-Anton Chigurh mm-hmm. in some ways. Yeah. Like, in terms yeah. of, like, just, just the randomness of it. And that is something that Fargo definitely has. What, so season one, uh, I assume you're talking about... Um, I mean, you could go with Billy Bob Thornton's character. Yeah. Um, you could go... You could go Mr. Numbers, Mr. Wrench. Yeah, absolutely. So that was the thing. I, was, I identified it as basically like, you know, you have... They all share the aesthetic and the region, which we can talk about as well, but you have a kind of... A guy who thinks he's the protagonist, who is kind of a shitty dude, bumbling white guy who thinks he's a hero, feels hard done by and just gets in over his head. You've got a sort of slightly terrible comedy double act, um, and then you've got, like, a you know, the adorable hero slash only competent person kind of thing. And I guess in this, you kind of... And then the, the super violent, quiet person, you kind of merge those two together in the movie, in that Stormare is both part of a sort of ridiculous double act with Buscemi, and also is the incredibly violent guy. So, whereas the, the, the show, yeah... Billy Bob Thornton is separate to uh, Wrench and Numbers, and then you know in the in the later seasons you've got I guess Bear, Autumn Bear. I mean yeah. when I think when I think of it in, in I think of Hansy, Mike, yeah. Mike, Mike Milligan in season two. Yeah, I, I guess the, the show like it has more than one of, of some of these, but it's just it, these seem to be the through lines as you get these characters that seem you know these hyper violent criminals in a very aggressively friendly. <laughs> Like twee town, just murdering people left and right, and as you said, like Peter Stormare with, with with so few lines as Gaillet, um, just so memorable and like impactful, has such a presence. Barely speaks, murders basically everybody he comes into contact with. <laughs> yeah, just so so good. And I believe I read he formed a band called Blonde from Fargo. <laughs> Uh, to honour this, but yeah, I'm skipping around all over the place. I think we do have to acknowledge something up front, and that is the 
very first thing you see that this is a true story and it's not <laughs> um no scenes in the film are filmed in fargo just as an as, as a by the by um but yeah it the 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 claim that it's based on a true story allegedly inundated Fargo, North Dakota with, with people looking for the money. One, very famously, have you seen Kamiko the Treasure Hunter? I've not. I mean, obviously, that, that is a fictional story, isn't it? Yes, but inspired. Yeah, so one woman allegedly froze to death looking for the money. The police ruled it a suicide. But I think somebody found the idea of a person just completely not understanding it's a work of fiction. I think they found that somewhat romantic and made a film out of yeah, it. Yeah, so. I've heard it's absolutely fantastic. Uh, I've heard Rinko Kinkuchi is like absolutely fantastic in it, and it's just it like obviously it's one of those tiny, tiny independent movies that kind of does a little bit better than you expect it to do. Uh, I think only grosses like a half million dollars and stuff like that. But like, there's a romantic edge to it in terms of as as you say, like someone not understanding the conventions of the Coen brothers or film and going like, there's a million dollars sat in the middle of Minnesota that I should go try and find. Yeah. Like, it's just, it's just wild. And like, I, I vividly remember seeing Fargo talked about on some TV show or other and people being genuinely outraged. You can't say it's a true story when it's not. It's like, of course you fucking can. And it even says in the end credits, this is a work of fiction. Any, resemblance to people living or deceased is purely coincidental blah 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 and i think they've changed their answer to it over the years and and the most recent time they were asked about it they're like, oh yeah we made the whole thing up um, so yeah but the original the original explanation was that like there were a series of three murders that were committed mm. and we basically wrote the story around it because obviously yeah. like they would have had no idea about the money or the kidnapping or any of these different things or them being related. You have to imagine it's just, if they are basing on something, it's just the idea that a police officer and two people were found murdered by the side of the road. Yeah. And yeah. they've they've made a, a incredibly convoluted backstory off the back of that. <laughs> there was, I think, actually a person in Minnesota who paid some people to murder his wife, but then she... She did die, but she like briefly got away, and, and they got caught because she briefly got away, and then he denied it, but eventually it got found to be true. So some people believe it's like partially based on that, but yeah, I mean, <laughs> just very funny that like this this genuinely caused like some hubbub, and like some people were genuinely like you can't say it's true when it's not, and that people yeah, did but... go to the town and everything. I, I watched it with my partner for the first time the other mm. night, and I'm like, this is one of my favorite movies of all time. And then at the end of it, where I just kind of turn around and go, like, yes, they made a movie about someone thinking the movie was real. And she literally went, like, wait, what do you mean the movie wasn't real? <laughs> you could have had, you could, you could have made your own Kimiko. <laughs> We could have. Like you guys could have been planning out a trip to America and like, oh, where should we go? Which city should we hit up? And she could be like, oh, we should go and try and find the money. Um, and then you would have had an oh, honey kind of moment on your hands. Yeah. So, as I said, like a huge part of this is the aesthetic, is the accent, is the region of it all. As I said, I will not do it, but uh, that accent that they use, I believe, is called Minnesota Nice, and it is not at all common in the parts of the film. <laughs> In the parts of the state where the movie is actually set. But hey, it's quirky, so let's go with it. But it, it it's more than just the accent, it's 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 the vernacular, it's like sure, sorry, yeah, you bet. Oh, I, I can't yeah, it's I sort of it's creeping in, it's not on purpose and like, you know, real good now and 
just little turns of phrase like that that are just so incredibly weird to the ear and like I feel before this movie you could be forgiven for thinking it's like an impression of of like Canadians or something and like you know when you get up into the north of America and you're on the border with Canada anyway and like it is all ostensibly sort of influenced by Scandinavian immigrants and stuff anyway so I think all of that does blend together but thanks to Fargo blowing up and and again possibly because of the show it is distinctly recognisable as its own thing but I think the first time I saw it I was like and this is definitely not in Canada (laughs) because just you know growing up you hear people saying a boot and you know all of that sort of stuff yeah but just I don't know how anyone keeps a straight face um, in the movie, in the TV show. No offence to anyone who is actually from there, such as Kristen Rudrud, uh, Jerry's wife in the movie, was actually born in Fargo, <laughs> funnily enough. So I don't know if she's exaggerating the accent <laughs> for the movie, but, you know, it's just kind of a funny voice. And I think when you watch Fargo, you can't help but do it. You do the little impression to everyone for a few hours. But yeah, just so charming. I don't know why they settled on like doing it there. I don't know like <laughs> what the inspiration was behind them using the accents, but like it's well, the Collins are from Minnesota, I believe. So, but probably, but obviously, like they've made multiple movies at this point. I don't think they ever go back to this well again. Like, it's no. just like this one singular movie where they're like, yeah, let's embrace the weirdness of this. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I like, and I can't imagine what it's like because obviously, it's only really. Francis McDormand and William H. Macy of like the, the main four who are mm-hmm. doing it. Like Steve Buscemi and Peter Stormare are outsiders fundamentally coming into this world. And who the fuck knows where Peter Stormare's character is even <laughs> supposed to be from? Because <laughs> Gaillet to me, that looks like a French name, but like I think he is supposed to just be who he is, and I think he is I Swedish. Have to, yeah, I have to assume it, it's, it's Scandinavian. It yeah. I mean, Grim, Grimsrud, that does sound. <laughs> Buscemi not really trying it. And then everyone else is sort of the like, the character actors and the and the, the townsfolk and all of that. But, I mean, the, the phone call Marge has with Mike Yanagita is just... Imagine reading that script. Like, just seeing the lines of dialogue, and it's just... It's just, yeah, and ha, huh, and yeah. And it's just, it's just like, you are not having a conversation <laughs> But it's all just so incredibly aggressively friendly at all times, um, and I love it for that. Like every com, you know, every bumbling conversation while everyone just smiles, and Marge just happily, blissfully sits there while the two sex workers are just just going on and on. You know that that bartender's story about you know it's not that kind of place, and he says, "Last person who called me this isn't alive anymore," and it's just. Yeah, just so good. And I, I think it really, it kind of empowers all these sort of extras and bit parts to have so much more character than they would have in a movie that's set in Chicago or, or just to borrow something from um, Studio 60 on the on the Sunset Strip, you know, like Boston, California. There's a rhythm to the dialogue in this movie that makes everything sing. And it's yeah. like, you, you, could ima- you couldn't have any characters doing the kind of long shaggy dog stories that they tell in this movie and have mm-hmm. it be as interesting as it is if they're not doing the accents. Like, as you say, like the, the, the bartender who's telling the <laughs> incredibly long-winded story to the random police officer about, like, uh, about Steve Buscemi. Or even, like, repeated references to, like, what did, what did Steve Buscemi look like? And he goes, oh, it's just funny looking. It's funny looking. Funny looking, funny looking, looking how? how? 
<laughs> just funny looking. Like no one can pin down what Steve Buscemi looks like, which is incredibly accurate. But like, it's it's just made much more endearing. Like, it's not frustrating that no one can can pin down what Steve Buscemi looks like mm. because they're just they're so nice and they're so open. And it's that yeah. it's that kind of weird side of America where like, and obviously this is a leftist kind of like not American <laughs> point of view coming in here. But it's like you see these depictions of small town USA and how nice and friendly everyone is and it's like but you know the moment that outsider comes across they're like they've pegged you and they've judged you the moment that you see them kind of thing and that's exactly what is going on here whereas like it doesn't matter that like we know that steve buscemi and peter stormer are assholes we know that they're cold-blooded murderers and all the rest of this stuff but like it feels like the reason that they're memorable is because they're out of towers yeah yeah I, i i think that's what's funny about it is that like marge kind of ridiculously easily solves this and I think it's just kind of a testament to, like, you know, it's a rural area. Everybody knows everyone. Everyone talks to each other. And if you're even remotely not friendly, you stick right out. But also just it is hard to do a crime without leaving a paper trail. <laughs> like, fundamentally, it's just so easy to connect the dots. Yeah, just, and I love that about it. And there's, there's also this sort of, like, and I feel you see some of it in the show as well, where they're sort of, like, they don't mean to be, but they're being incredibly difficult sometimes. <laughs> and people just have to smile and be like, okay, okay. And just sort of let them go. <laughs> um, and a lot of repeating yourself and all this stuff. Um, but, you know, more than just, you know, the accent and everything, the snow and the landscapes are a huge, huge part of it. And, like, living in an area, in a part of the world where, you know, <laughs> snow is something to, like, put in newspapers <laughs> and shut down the country um seeing it like this thick and this like omnipresent is it is sort of it makes it feel like a completely different world yeah i mean the movie opens up with that shot of like just the the completely white streets the amount of times that the movie does establishing shots that are just like it's just white there's no footprints and you've got like a lone car in there i mean like yeah. this is where we have to do the shout out to roger deakins like yeah. this is one of his 12 collaborations with the coen brothers obviously one of his academy award nominations like he should have won the academy award for this but you can say that about like almost every movie that he should have won before he ends up winning the two in the row that he's won recently just an insanely gifted cinematographer who knows exactly how to to shoot these things like he is good at comedy he's good at action he's good at drama he's good at establishing shots like the perfect intermeshing of like all these different things and like when i think of fargo i think of things like the shot of the car park yeah jerry's car in the car park when he goes out there and then like he he gets out with the with the ice scraper (laughs) and like loses it on the thing it's just like these shots are so good and so iconic but also, like, the actual tactile sh- uh, storytelling of each individual scene is good. Like, mm-hmm. the fact that he do something like the the Mike Yanagita scene. <laughs> I mean, obviously, and this is this is uh, props to Francis McDormand and to the Coens for making this, but the Mike Yanagita scene where he lays his heart on the line, talks about, like, how his wife died from cancer and how he's just alone now and is looking for friendship, and then you find out that uh, like he was lying and he never married the person he said he was married to. And she's and they, alive, by the by. <laughs> yeah, and she's alive. And you should go speak to her again. Like, even though this person she didn't even remember when Yanagita mentioned to her, like, oh yeah, you should give her a phone call. It's like, really? Like, <laughs> this person didn't even remember they existed before they yeah. phone this person. But yeah. the follow up scenes to that, where it's all visually told of just Marge driving the car mm. and you can see the cogs turning and then the transition into going to see Jerry. And it's like, yeah. 
like, oh yeah, even though we were put on this accent, this affectation of kind of like being nice and encouraging, like people can still lie even whilst they're kind of like smiling at you. And yeah, yeah. like because that scene comes out of nowhere in the movie, and it feels so. It feels awful. pointless, but it's like it, it's the whole. It unravels it for her. Like, oh, he could be lying, I suppose. <laughs> so good. And, and you know, we, we bickered a little bit about No Country for Old Men, but, you know, the point that is irrefutable is that is a gorgeous movie in terms of capturing that landscape and everything. And you get that here as well. And the snow really magnifies it even more. And Even even just down to, like, the way he shoots the scene where Storm Air is putting Steve Buscemi in the wood chipper. <laughs> and, like, you don't see the wood chipper, the tray of... The trees in the way. All you see is the blood, kind of like splattering on onto the onto the snow. Yeah. And like he he like they play out so long until they show you that he's got a human <laughs> leg that he's just trying to jab inside this thing. <laughs> and he throws the plank at her or the shoe or whatever. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, I I feel really there's it's sort of the the trio. I mean, I, I guess one of those three legs is is a double act. But you know, why don't you pick for us? Do you want to talk about Jerry, uh, Margie, or or the two criminals first? Let's go Marge first because okay, I've got Marge. I've got like there's so much. I mean, because obviously McDormand wins the Oscar. She is yeah. a force to be reckoned with. I think it's it's not a shame that she's won two more Oscars since because she's obviously incredible. It is a shame that she wins for something like Three mm. Billboards. Um, yes, like it's still a good performance from her. It's not what I'd pick. I'd also not pick her for for Nomadland, even though that is once again like her performance is what makes that movie work. Yeah. Even if it is that kind of like voyeuristic, she's the only actress in a movie full of real people and kind of like hearing their stories and mm. and all the things people complain about. But like Fargo feels to me like the one irrefutable win that she's got. It's like you look yeah. at who she's nominated against who. Uh, who was she nominated against? She is nominated against in 1996. Brenda Blethyn for Secrets and Lies, Diane Keaton for Marvin's Room, Kristen Scott Thomas for The English Patient, and Emily Watson for Breaking the Waves. And it's like it's it's undeniable mm. th- that she is the best of them. And for such a comparatively like it's not a big performance in any way. Like it's startlingly startlingly understated in the way that she depicts things. She's just a competent person yeah. who lives in this world, has a nice life with her husband, <laughs> like doesn't particularly want to rock the boat or anything like that, but she's just competent and talented and empathetic and yeah, like she, she doesn't have a scene where she's like emoting hugely. She's just doing everything that she needs to do so well. Like she's so good in the Mike Yanagita scene where like he comes and sits next to her and she's like, No, I prefer for you to sit opposite me. Yeah, it's like the like, closer she gets to <laughs> like right, you fucking quit it. <laughs> Um, and even then, just so trying to be nice, like, oh no, I'd, I'd rather look at you. Yeah, she's just, I don't know, she's like a nice mirror almost. And like, Jerry, Jerry like cracks without her really even pressing in that hard. <laughs> and just, just does not hold up under interrogation at all. But yeah, just her, like, you know, kind of being the only competent policeman while everyone else is like, I mean, is this such a small town that you just go and say, I'd like to be one of the sheriff deputies, and they go, sure, here's your badge. Um, just her correcting Lou, not not Lou, of uh, of season two slash one fame, a different Lou. Um, and just being like, do you think DLR could mean dealer plates? You're like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, I mean, I mean, like the scene where she pieces it all together, where she finds the mm. car and like goes to visit the two of them, and she literally just lays out everything you've seen in the preceding yeah. scene. Is like, it's it's so good, and because she takes forty minutes to shove into this movie, like it does so much so quickly to like characterize her and firm her up in your brain as to like what kind of character she's going to be, and to to dip back into the TV show briefly, I think it's also the best piece of casting that the show does is that they manage to find someone who can match yeah. Francis McDormand's energy in Alison Tolman. Uh, mm-hmm. like Alison Tolman is such an incredible find in that show because it's one of those things where it's like, well, they're never going to find yeah. a Francis McDormand type. And they, they come so close. And it's not to say that Martin Freeman and Colin Hanks and Billy Bob Thornton aren't good, mm. but Alison Tolman is like kind she's, of a revelation. Yeah, yeah. And she's like the one that you're like, most rooting for, I would say, and oh, please don't die, and <laughs> everything, and, you know, season two, like, Lou Solverson is, it, you know, he's kind of no-nonsense, just a little bit more rough and ready, but I feel that, to a degree, attempting to replicate that margin-norm relationship, like, seeing um, Patrick Wilson and, and Christine Malotti, like, just being so fucking cute together as well, um, in their little house, full of little knickknacks, that's also super cute. Like, we were talking about cinematography and everything it, it's not even a sexy shot but just like the shot of like when they've had breakfast and then she walks down the stairs and out the door and then comes back in and it's all you know you can see them both in the frame i really love that shot it sticks with me quite a lot and it's just so innocuous and just he makes her eggs before she goes out policing yeah. so I, I do want to give a, a shout out to the, to the frequent references to ducks because i didn't realize <laughs> That that is an actual competition that happens in America. Oh yeah, there is a, a stamp that gets released every single year with with ducks on it that goes towards duck conservation. Hell yeah, and it's a huge competition. And so I find it quite funny that the Wikipedia page mentions that um, <laughs> his friend's painting won the competition for the twenty nine cent stamp. But the name that they use, Houtman, is the name of a family of brothers who have won the competition sixteen times, I think. Sixteen times, Jesus. Like, yeah, and so it's just that that weird thing where it's like, this is a, a very real thing that happens. It's obviously something very big in this particular community. Probably the Coens are pulling from something that they know. I just find it quite funny that like, yeah. the Wikipedia article is calling it their friend. It's like, no, this is a reference to a very real thing. Like, <laughs> I presume this Houtman is an explicit reference to yeah. these three brothers who have cornered the world of duck paintings that they end up on stamps. Yeah. <laughs> The, the duck the duck painting racket um, yeah I, 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 it's just just an insane piece of textual yeah or textual information that I, I was like I have to assume it, it goes back to them being from Minnesota themselves and it must be a thing up there and like in the same way that in the credits the the guy that runs out onto the ice and and uh, Peter Stormare shoots is credited with a symbol not dissimilar to the the love symbol that Prince briefly went by and I have to assume it's a nod to that. Um, <laughs> that is, I think that's their location advisor, or yeah, like, yeah, yeah. someone he's, on the crew. Yeah, he's someone on the crew, but yeah, they credit him as it is a slightly different symbol. But it's like, what the fuck? Then <laughs> um, you just have to assume it's like, ah, let's let's do a little a little dig at Prince. Yeah, I, I love that. You know, they left uh, John Carroll Lynch and Francis McDormand to come up with their own backstory, as I said, and they came up with you know. They met as police, fell in love, got married, decided one of them needed to be the stay-at-home spouse, and because Marge is a better police officer, Norm just stayed at home and just learned to paint ducks. 
and that's just all he does at this time and he meets Marge with, with fast food and they just eat a lot as I said like she's so good as like putting it together and like not really even applying much pressure to, to Jerry and him just cracking and you know happening upon the car and uh, just immediately taking down Gaia and I love her like actually lecturing him like all of this for a little bit of money like come on there's bigger things in the world than money. <laughs> well, there's like hardened killer is just sitting in the back with a bullet in his leg. Um, that's like that's how you know like, it's fiction. She shoot you know, a cop shoots someone in the leg, obviously. <laughs> I do like that. Like everyone underestimates the amount of money, uh, <laughs> which is which is probably my favorite thing because like we can go to William H Macy and yeah, just yeah. how fucking complicated his entire scheme is. So so <laughs> I'm gonna try and lay it out. So he. Cool put money down on a set of cars that he does not have. So he took a loan out on some cars. Yeah, it's 320000 or something Three, like that. 320000 which he needs to pay back. Yes. So he then tries to get his father-in-law to invest in his... He has two here. separate plans. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, good on him. He's diversifying his portfolio. <laughs> Trying to get his father-in-law to invest in that. Also, at the same time, kidnap his own wife have Carl and Gaia kidnap his wife, yeah, drives up to, to Fargo <laughs> where there are criminals. Uh, please kidnap my wife. Her father is very rich. He'll pay a ransom of $80,000. So, right, so is the million dollars what he always intended to be the amount, or does the million dollars only come into play once he realizes the 750 is out. So he asked for 750,000 from Wade. If he'd got a loan of his own of 320, let's say he has 30 of his own. Maybe he was always trying to get to a million, but why is he trying to get specifically to a million? <laughs> Other than it's a nice number that a, you know, little bumbling fuck like him is like, I want a million dollars. Like, and it's unclear, like, you know, he just has, he just why has did he take this out <laughs> in the first place? And like you know, we see him in 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 his he is a car he's a sales manager of a car dealership, um, you know, a job that he was presumably sort of gifted or he met Wade's daughter through working for Wade or whatever, but you know and you see how shitty he is at upselling and you know, he's supposed to con people basically into taking a sealant they don't want and he's really bad at it. So like he's so bad at it. Like the scene where he has like lied to these people on the phone that they can have the car for a certain amount of money, mm-hmm. gets them in there and is just like, oh, it, it comes pre-installed, I can't do anything. Mm-hmm. Wanders into a manager's office and then just kind of says like, oh, he's playing this game. They've never done this before. You can have it for, what, like a hundred dollars less or something? Yeah, it, it's just like the ultimate like sleazy, <laughs> shitty salesman tactics. It's the kind of thing that like, yeah. he, he's so bad at it, he's so slimy. Yeah. And I mean like, I think it. I think it's what I said before. He thinks he's the nicest man in the world, and that he deserves good things. And he's actually a complete shitbag. <laughs> and he's just sitting there with that shitty grin on his face, being like, "Oh well, um, you know, I can't do anything about it." And I like that he actually. They end up paying for it. Like they can't do anything about it. It's just he even achieves the shitty smarmy salesman thing in the worst possible way. <laughs> you know, like he. Like, yeah. Well, both of both of us have had to do <laughs> the shitty smarty salesman thing in our lives. Yeah, I don't like it. I never liked it. Uh, made some enemies because of how much I didn't like it. <laughs> but like, it, it does make you feel dirty, and it doesn't feel like it makes him feel dirty. Like he's more mm. upset that like people are mad at him than yeah. he is upset that he is making 
like people's lives worse. I think he wants to be so good at, at wowing people, and like he fancies himself a salesman, and he should be able to talk them into thinking it's a great deal. But he can't even do that. He just makes them reluctantly, angrily <laughs> take it. And, yeah, and like I, you know, maybe that's how he's in debt. Like he's having to sell some cars at a loss because of this or some shit. I don't know why he's in debt, other than. Maybe he's just shitty with money. But yeah, like he, he thinks that Wade should just give him three quarters of a million dollars on a real estate investment for nothing. Um, and he's like, oh, I'll pay you back with interest. And they're like, no, fuck off. Like, thanks for bringing it to our attention. We'll give you a small amount, like 10% or, or 5% or whatever. I, I actually really like that about it, that like the first we see of him, he's trying the kidnapping the wife thing. And then he gets a real good feeling about this business opportunity. And he tries to cancel the wife thing. And he, you know, he approaches Shep Proudfoot, who's basically like, hmm, <laughs> fuck off. And he's like, okay. okay. And he, he, like, he's convinced he doesn't need the wife kidnapping plan anymore. And then the real estate thing blows up in his face. And then the kidnapping doesn't go as planned either. And it's just this man that was just so ambitious, too, too, too many ideas above his station. And it just all falls apart in his hands. That's thing, because William H. Macy is so good at doing the many layers of mm. this character, because he is a salami arsehole. He does the, the like pent-up anger that's so ineffectual, <laughs> so well. Terribly beating his car with an ice scraper. Like, he does the terrible, like, the, the as you said like before, when he's got the interviews or with the, the interrogations with, with Marge, and, like, he just falls apart the first kind of, like, difficult question. It's almost like he's kind of going, like, why do you feel entitled to ask me questions about this. Yeah. Like, He's like, come on, I'm, I'm, try, I'm trying to... We're trying to be the good guys here. Fine, I'll do a count of the lot. The police. Just a huge asshole, but like, William H. Macy is so good at doing yeah. all the sides of it. And like, we discussed this briefly beforehand, but like, I do think that this is major category flaw to call him the supporting actor in this movie. Yeah. Considering he is the reason that the plot goes forward. And yeah. like... If you can say that Bronson McDormand is the lead actress, then you can definitely say that William H. Macy is the lead actor. I also think he probably has an easier time of winning <laughs> lead actor in the category. Like, not to say that like the people nominated as lead actor aren't good, but like Cuba Gooding in in Jerry Maguire is kind of a revelation. Yeah, that's a, so a powerhouse. Yeah. And I, not to say that I, I think like it's it's better performance than William H. Macy, but I do think that he's got a better chance of beating Jeffrey Rush and Shine yeah. than he does to beat. Cubicon Jr. and Jerry Maguire. Absolutely. Is it just like, is it like disrespect from the Academy? They just don't view him as a high enough profile actor? I think that's just where he submits himself. I think. Oh, yeah, you do submit yourself, don't you? It it probably is just one of those things where it's like, again, I don't know what conversations they had at the time, but obviously, William H. Macy took the decision to nominate himself in supporting actor, and it's like, technically, you probably should have room for Buscemi and Stormare in supporting actor, move William H. Macy up into lead actor. But that's in the world where Fargo is like, yes, it's the second most nominated movie at the Oscars this year, the second most winning movie at the Oscars this year, yeah. but it's up against the English patient, which is that kind of like, <laughs> again, that juggernaut movie that's made to win Oscars. And it's like, but it's just kind of a little bit sad that, like. Yeah, they, they could have shared the love a bit. Everyone would have stood a better chance. You know, you get Buscemi, <laughs> the Oscar nomination. I would probably struggle for to say both Buscemi and Stormare, but. You know, why not? We'll talk about them um, in a minute. They, but... they, they, prob- they probably split the boat in that case. Yeah, and, yeah. And would you agree that Buscemi's kind of... Buscemi's the flashier 
Yeah, he's doing he's doing most acting. <laughs> yeah, but you know, like Macy is doing so much here, and like there's he's doing these like little like I don't know what to call it like jowl movements almost as he's having to swallow his pride to Wade and you know Wade like emasculating him in his house and then telling him he's an idiot and the deal and then taking over the kidnapping from him. He's like, no, I'm going to talk to the kidnappers. I'll go give the ransom money. And, and, and Jerry can't do anything except watch it happen. I really like that he, um, two, two other things, that he rehearses how heartbroken he is about you know his wife being kidnapped before he makes the call. And two, he completely forgets his son in this equation. <laughs> When it comes to, uh, you know, what's it going to do to his son that his wife has ostensibly been uh, kidnapped by murderers. <laughs> oh shit, Scotty. Just great stuff. A great performance. But yeah, so so our two our two criminals. Um, yeah, Buscemi is just all over the fucking map, best possible way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, where, where is Buscemi at this point, Chris? Buscemi is kind of like, he's done a few movies with the Coen brothers. He's kind of doing that, like, character actor thing where he's doing, like, three, four, five movies a year. Obviously, he's in Pulp Fiction a couple of years before this in, like, a cameo role. Mm. But I, I, I do think that, like, it, it's this Cohen run where he starts to become, like, recognisable. I think probably more well-known for Big Lebowski. Yeah. Although, yeah. like, it's that weird thing where like, this is kind of, like, where his career kind of, like, goes off in those, like, the three parts of his career where he's got, like, the Coen Brothers' weird character actor side. He's got the Con Air, he'll come and do your action movie kind of side. Yeah. And then he's also got, like, he does all of the Adam Sandler comedies. Yes. His magnum opus. You know, the, the stuff he, he's truly known for. Yeah. Just, I feel he's as much a sort of, he's not a meme, but yeah. Oh, he is a meme. The, 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 him pretending to be a teenager is a meme. He's kind of famous for being this weird-looking dude who's all over the place. He is a great actor. He is a weirdo. He is in some terrible stuff. Just very irrecognisable as a human being. Wild to think that like he can go from being the lead of a HBO series mm-hmm. directed by Martin Scorsese. Uh, <laughs> he's got a season-long arc on The Sopranos. He's currently in that Miracle Workers show, the like anthology with, with Daniel Radcliffe. Oh, yeah. Uh, and that's still the, going that's still going <laughs> oh, God. and at the same time like he still takes time out of his career to go do like a Hubie Halloween yeah and, <laughs> oh god yeah insane career yeah but yeah. he's also someone that I would make the argument should have had an Oscar at this point in their yeah. career as well yeah. like I don't know he's just the ultimate kind of like good vibes I'm just going to do what I feel like doing yeah like, absolutely he, he makes what he wants again like of all like there's lots of people who do the Adam Sandler stuff, and uh, shout out to my friend who's doing the the Truly Happily Madison podcast, where they they submit themselves to like all of these movies. But I feel like Buscemi is one of the actors who comes away with that, like without having the stink on him, yeah. of like the racism and the, the fat phobia and the homophobia and all mm-hmm. these like weird things that come from it. It's just like, yeah, he just came and hung out on set for a day. Yeah, like we alluded to it earlier. Like, not only is does he stand out in in real life, he stands out in the movie, not just because. You know, he's that funny-looking guy and, and no one can describe quite how. But because he makes a real fucking show of himself. <laughs> like, he's constantly threatening people and swearing and and just being a dick. And it makes him stand out. And, you know, he fancies himself a big-time criminal, but is a bit shit. And I think that's another part of Fargo. Like, you know, you do have the hyper-violence that is almost shocking. But then you also have 
things being a little bit shit, you know, a little bit bumbling, people dropping things, people falling over, like making it feel more true to life. Like the number of scenes where Jean is just running around with a thing on her head or, or struggling or whatever. And by the by, the, the, <laughs> the Peter Stormare just casually kills her when she's like most of the plot. Um, <laughs> yeah, kills her off screen. And she's just lying in that really disturbing way. And he's like, yeah, she wouldn't shut up. And she's like, oh my god. <laughs> So I love that, you know, he's just a little bit bad at it. Like, you know, Wade shoots him uh, and he's got this horrific gaping wound for the rest of the film that he's trying to, like, cover with, like, newspaper. And it's like, no, you need a hospital, my dude, but they will arrest you because there's clearly been a bullet in you. (laughs) Yeah, and, like, him, you know, that he is the one that makes that decision of, um, you know, you said about the money and no one knowing how much it is. When he gets the full million... And and he's like, mm, take out eighty thousand, take that back to Gaier, and then he's the one that buries it. And it, that moment of realization when he looks around, it's like, I am in the middle of bumfuck nowhere. I could not find this place again if you paid me the contents of this briefcase. And then his solution is, hmm, a tiny like six <laughs> inch high ice pick candle. I'll definitely be able to find this. <laughs> the snow in the next twenty four hours to cover this up entirely. <laughs> and like, would you see that? In a car, like unless he makes some kind of attempt to note roughly where he is, you would not see that from the road in a car um, in the snow. The thing is, this, the, the movie makes a point of being like there is no recognizable landmark. It's just open space and a fence that looks identical for the next like mile. <laughs> yeah, in both directions. Yeah, so good. And like, yeah, like he is the sort of reason it all goes wrong. Like he he fucks up with the dealer plates. He doesn't really have a plan to deal with the cop. He's very much like, well, he does. It just doesn't work. Like his plan is to get off for the cop fifty dollars. Yeah, it's just the overconfidence of it always. Like yeah. well, we're in the middle of bumfuck nowhere. Like they're yeah. not going to have a good. They're not going to have a moral upstanding cop here. And right? in fact, that's all they have. This <laughs> <laughs> is your underestimation, my friend. Um, all they have is honest fellas. And uh, yeah, then Gaia just also- murders the fucker. <laughs> Yeah, but he's also like too horny for his own good because like the, the only <laughs> can't he stop caught, fucking. The only reason he gets caught by Shep is because like he's like, I'm gonna go out with the cool girl and Shep savagely beating him mid lay is such a weird scene. Um, so clearly overdubbed and everything with weird dialogue. He he kicks the girl in the ass literally, <laughs> but just like okay, sure, why not. Yeah, like, you know, so Gaia murders the cop, and then Carl can't even get rid of the body quick enough, so two just random see him dragging a body off the road, <laughs> so then Gaia has to run them down. And then he briefly loses them in the dark, because, again, the aesthetic, you know, this is just miles and miles of no electric lights anywhere, like, you know, it's just, and as soon as their lights disappear, it's like, fuck, where are they? And luckily for him, they went off the fucking road, um, and he executes them, but yeah, it's just, it's basically Carl fucking up. Gaia being quiet and being the one that, I guess he cleans up the mess, but he makes enough mess of his own. It's like, you know, would you be able to catch just Gaia? Would he be stupid enough to get caught like this? Who knows? You know, the ultimate betrayal of, like, we should one of us should buy the car off the other, and then he just murders him with an axe. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, it's not even like, I think he's just sick of his shit, isn't it? Because the entire mm-hmm. movie is him calling like a mute fuck and all these other things. Yeah. And then the final insult is just like, no, we're not splitting the car. Like, I'm I'm taking the car. You can have my van. 
Yeah. And he's like, well, then we've not split 50-50. <laughs> Fuck you. I mean, he's not wrong. And also, Carl knows he has more money waiting for him. So he just got a little bit too greedy. He could have just given him his half of the money or whatever, or like 30000 of it. I don't know what that car's worth, but... Yeah, just just gets that little bit too big for his boots, fucks up one too many times, makes that little bit too much mess, you know, mouths off to the bartender, which leads the police to him and everything. And then, uh, you know, going back to the sort of slightly she- shitty action, that Gaia doesn't even hear Marge calling out to him while he's feeding Carl to the wood chipper. <laughs> it's just that final little cherry on the, on the Sunday kind of thing, <laughs> where he's just sitting there feeding a corpse in, and she's like, um freeze hands up like hey oh shit hi and then yeah she takes him down pretty easily because she's got a gun and he doesn't (laughs) but yeah and just to end not where it started because as you said marge doesn't show up for like half an hour but to end marge's story where it started you know back in bed with norm and just talking about the mallard and the stamps and everything and it's just like okay and they're just back to their happy life. And that that's just a day for Marge. Oh, that's just a week for Marge. <laughs> like, what's going to happen know, next it week? It doesn't make a point of, like, this was a weird time that has changed Marge forever. It's just like, yeah, that was a thing. There were some criminals. <laughs> she saw someone get fed into a wood chipper. Like, yeah. But then another thing with Fargo, you know, again, the movie and the show, it feels like the events that you are seeing are the biggest things that will ever happen in these characters' lives. Like, that they are so in over their head. Like, season two, where you have all these, as I said, people that feel like volunteer police, and then, like, the organised crime syndicate arrive to siege the fucking police station, and they're like, what the hell, man? (laughs) But they never, like, there's never any, like, lingering... I mean, you know, people die, and lives are changed in that way, but as you said, like, it isn't like, and Marge was forever changed by this. And it's just like, back to normal life, I suppose. Where she's investigating, like, missing... Like in Hot Fuzz, you know? (laughs) Like the kind of crime that was happening before Nicholas Angel turned up. Yeah. Just, what a wonderful movie that just is so uniquely itself. And I won't say there's nothing like it, but it is so unique. Yeah, like, I mean, that's the thing. It's weird that, like, there's... I feel like people do try and make Coen Brothers style movies since obviously there's an entire TV show that's indebted to their style, but like when other people try and make Coen Brothers style things, like when people make works, you go, like, oh, that feels like Fargo. Yeah. It always feels so much worse. Yeah. They just they just know what the fuck they're doing. Like, they know each other, they know their cast. Like, to write three parts for specific actors in mind uh, without even doing auditions, I think is a huge part of it. This... It feels like all of their stuff just arrives fully formed. Like, there's no, like, elaborate way they reached this movie or conceived it or broke it. I mean, maybe that is all happening behind the scenes, but it feels like they just... Three years has gone by, or two years has gone by, the Coens have another idea, and it's weird. (laughs) And they just make it, and they make it competently, and they make another thing. While this movie is as tight as it is, I love the little things like uh, when... Jerry and Steve Bichette, and when Carl. when Jerry when Jerry and Carl are on the phone and Carl goes like I'll see you in thirty minutes. That's when like or this will be over in thirty minutes. That is like literally there's mm-hmm. thirty minutes left in the movie. Yep, I'm a sucker of- for anything like that. Any any kind of real life time cue like we covered it in Empire Records. We covered it in Heat. It when they call out when they call their shot like that and say an amount of time and then edit it to to match. Just mwah, love it. Yeah, for sure. You know, the the final shot or one of the final shots mirroring that first shot, like as as Marge drives Gaye to the state troopers, 
it kind of reflects Jerry driving alone. Just, just <laughs> they know how to make a film, basically. <laughs> they're filmmakers I love. There's a reason why they're filmmakers that we've covered in two mm. out of three miniseries. It remains to be seen whether or not we cover them in four to one. I don't know what your feelings are on like a, a Raising Arizona or a Blood Simple. Uh, I could see Raising Arizona making it onto volume four. Yeah, and one, you know, a decade from now when we do volume five, maybe the tragedy of Macbeth will be really good. <laughs> uh, 2021's got like a really stacked end of year. Like, I'm yeah. going to see a sequel to one of my favourite movies of 2019 at the end of this year. Mm. Um, I, I mean, like, Tame's obviously coming out. What is out? But yeah, I'm like so I'm... excited at the end of this year, and it feels like this year's going to make up for, like, not an anemic 2020, but like a I don't know. There's there's still plenty of stuff that crept into 2020, in my opinion. That oh yeah, is worth a look. Yeah. Anyway, uh, they did briefly attempt to do a spin-off series um, with the characters of Marge and Lou, just set after the movie and just going about their 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 police business. Uh, a failed pilot directed by Kathy Bates of all people. I think it then maybe got spun into a into a TV movie or something. I don't know. Would that be starring Frances McDormand? I don't think cast? so. Because that's the thing. It's like she wins an Oscar for this. I can't imagine someone winning an Oscar and then immediately going, "Ah, yes, I will continue playing this character on TV now." For the next <laughs> I mean, maybe years. she maybe she really liked it. Yeah, I, I I can't imagine. If John Carroll Lynch does that, how different is his career? Because mm. obviously, so much of like. Like his career feels like he plays the creep, the murderer, the, the weird. <laughs> I think guy. that's why it's nice that he's just, you know, the homebody here, just in like big jumpers or sweatshirts um, and just eating and cuddling with Marge kind of thing. It's very funny as, as a contrast to, say, Zodiac or whatever. Yeah, I, I don't know. But then obviously, the TV show, Noah Hawley briefly proves he's very good at making things. And then, uh, yeah. Maybe season four exists. Like, Noah Hawley is someone that we probably have to do a deep dive on, because it feels like the only time he's been really discussed on this podcast network was the aborted way that you and Mike were going to cover Legion. Legion. Yeah, that, <laughs> that episode was on the schedule, Legion Series 3, for a very long time, and then we just recorded something else, and that just went over it. At some point, Legion Series 3. Um, Legion is... One of my favourite TV shows ever. Fargo, one to three, absolutely excellent. He is my boy. It makes me deeply sad that he is apparently being exposed as out of ideas and completely shit. As Fargo series four bombed, Lucy in the Sky bombed. He's getting kicked off of like Star Trek and and whatever else. His alien thing. Everyone is tearing apart for sounding shit even though it's a fairly innocuous quote that I'm like, yeah, okay, sure. Apparently his book is a bit shit. I don't know. We'll save that for our Noah Hawley podcast. Yeah, we do a deep dive of Noah Hawley where we watch The Unusuals in my generation as well. <laughs> okay, got it. But we can't do that next. What we have to do next is instead Bound. Uh, and we're doing Bound because Ben was denied by his own rules the ability to talk about The Matrix, but Bound is still a very good movie, so, you know, there are worse consolation prizes out there. On one hand, we have one of the greatest movies of all time, on the other hand, we have one of the great debuts by one of our greatest filmmaking partnerships in the world. Like, mm. I know which one I'd rather discuss, but I'm but, not going to keep telling you, you made the rules. <laughs> 
Like, we arrived at this podcast, I had no notes other than probably shouldn't talk about superhero films, and then that evolved into all of these rules, and uh, Mike and I happened to do The Matrix, so... Yeah, you know, I blame you. I blame you for covering the Matrix. Why? <laughs> you try talking makes... Mike into doing anything other than a trilogy of films. <laughs> anyway, that is next week. Until then, there is one burning question. I believe this week actually has a correct answer, but we'll see what you come up with, Benjamin. Will there be movies? I, I, what's the correct answer? Like, oh yeah, you betcha, or whatever. <laughs> I didn't do the accent. I'm so proud of me. Very briefly at the beginning. Anyway, yes. Goodbye, everyone. (laughs)